Welcome back to part two of this podcast on how to read a scientific paper. In this part, we're actually going to focus on a paper on coevolution, the topic that Joanna and I introduced in part one. And despite saying that we would almost never read a paper from beginning to end, we're going to read a paper from beginning to end. So Joanna, can you introduce this one for us? What are we going to read? The title is A Novel Resource Service Mutualism Between Bats and Pitcher Plants. And the authors are Grafa et al. And it was published in 2011 in the journal Biology Letters. I picked this paper because it's a really nice little story. And papers in this journal tend to be short, easy to read, and tell one clear message. After we get through the biographical information of who the authors are and where it's published, we come to an abstract. Joanna, tell me what you think an abstract is for. And what did you get from this one? Well, I think it should give a fairly thorough picture of what the authors set out to do, how they did it, what they found, and why it matters, including how it builds on existing knowledge. But it needs to be concise and accessible. This way, the reader can decide pretty fast if they want to read the whole paper. So it's kind of like a trailer to the movie. Yeah. I think I've told my own students when they're trying to write them to consider it like two lines of introduction, one line of methods, one or two lines of results, and a line of discussion, a really distilled down summary of what the paper is going to be about. Okay, so what's in this one? So the authors talk about how you wouldn't expect a carnivorous plant and a vertebrate to evolve together unless it was a pollination relationship. But here, this pitcher plant has two kinds of pitchers. There's ones on the ground and ones in the air. Now, the ones in the air don't capture that many insects like pitchers are evolved to do. Instead, they harbor bats, which use the pitchers as homes and toilets, and their poop meets one-third of the plant's nitrogen needs. And this is the first known plant-bat mutualism of this nature. (laughs) I love the way you say they're using them as toilets. But let me get this right. The bats are living in this plant pitcher, which would normally catch insects, but is now hosting a bat. The bat gets a lovely little place to live. And rather than really catching a lot of insects, the pitcher has adapted to consume the bat's poop, its guano. And it's deriving, we think, a lot of its nitrogen from bat poop. Have I got that right? Yes, that's right, except that the the pitcher is still catching insects, but nowhere near as many compared to other related plants or compared to the pitchers that are on the ground. Okay, so the abstract gave us a summary of what's going to happen. Next, we've got a fairly short introduction. What is an introduction for and what's in this one? It's supposed to give the rationale for the study. So, you know, set the stage, provide context, and eventually lead into the objectives of the study and the hypotheses if we're talking about a hypothesis-driven experiment. And how did they set up this one? What have they told us here? So they describe basic pitcher plant morphology and ecology, and then what makes this particular species unique. It's aerial pitchers don't produce a scent that we can smell. 
reflect UV light and are rubbish at catching insects compared to other pitcher plants. So after they saw one bat species, which is Hardwick's woolly bat, roosting inside these aerial pitchers, they hypothesized that the pitchers deliberately entice bats to use them as toilets so they can get at the nitrogen in their guano. So the animal's waste is the plant's food. (laughs) Right. So they've gone from the really general this is what we know about pitcher plants, down to something really specific. This is what we hypothesize. Even in two paragraphs, they've gone from sort of really broad to really narrow. Right, so next is methods. What have they put in their methods section? The methods is a way for me to understand how the authors did what they did and decide if their approach was suited to the question. They monitored over 400 pitcher plants in Brunei, And whenever they found a bat in one of them, they stuck a radio tag on it so they could then track the bat. And this way, they were able to identify 38 pitchers that got used by bats and 17 that never did. Then they collected those pitchers and measured the nitrogen levels in the pitcher tissues. They also collected bat feces and used stable isotope analysis to ID the nitrogen signature of the guano. And they compared that with the nitrogen signature of the plant tissues to calculate how much nitrogen came from bats pooping in the pitchers. Okay, so they're trying to draw a really explicit link between the bat's poop and the nitrogen in the plant. Not just that they happen to poop in the plant, but the plant makes use of it. So the methods look really, really minimal and are often written in this super simplified way. But in fact, the whole point of methods is so that you or I could go out and totally redo this experiment in every way, exactly replicating it. So it sounds a bit formulaic sometimes and a bit succinct and terse, but it's supposed to be written that way to be totally replicable. And the next is the results section, which also students sometimes find really dry because it's a bit frustrating. It's just this string of facts, often with statistical analyses and no explanation. So what is the point of a results section? I don't know that I would describe it any differently from what you just said. You are simply reporting the observations that you made on the system you're studying, and you're doing it in a way that provides enough detail for the reader to then later when they read the discussion to decide if your interpretations and conclusions are grounded in the actual observations. So yes, you generally will report the results of statistical testing. You'll report things like mean values, fit of whatever models you're using. And I mean, using some kind of graphical representation to make it you know, immediately clear what the results are. When we talked about the introduction, we said they were setting out to explicitly try to link bat guano to the nitrogen being incorporated into the plant tissue. So what did they find? The authors convey in a convincing way that this species pitchers have morphological traits that seem like adaptations to hosting bats as tenants. And they did this by comparing the pitchers with those of its closest relative, which just wouldn't have room for a bat. And the figure in this case does 
an excellent job helping the readers see that. And they also discovered that the bats never roosted anywhere other than in these pitchers. Furthermore, nearly 30% of the plants and 20% of the pitchers had bats in them. And those that did had more nitrogen in their tissues, and one-third of that nitrogen, on average, came from bat guano. So it seems like there's a trade-off going on here for the plant. It is reducing the fluid it produces, and that will reduce its potential insect capture for consumption. That's a cost. But in doing so, it creates a space that a bat can live, and if it's lucky enough to get a bat moving in, it gets this big benefit where the nitrogen gets deposited by somebody else. So the trade-off, and there is a potential cost, but also a potential benefit. Exactly. And Okay, so you're not going to get the insects that other pitchers get. However, now you don't have to invest the energy in producing this digestive fluid. What the bats are giving you is pre-digested. So not only you don't have to make the fluid, but you also now don't have to even digest the insect. (laughs) So it's pre-chewed food that the plant is effectively being given by the bat. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, the final section of a paper is the discussion section. And this one gives students a lot of trouble, especially when they're learning to write papers. And I fully admit, the first time as a student I tried to write a scientific paper, it was a disaster. And I recall my own supervisor coming back to me and saying, this is not a discussion, try again. And now I can see you laughing because you know exactly what I mean about this. So in your own words, what is the discussion for? I'm just thinking... It's funny, and it's like the exact same thing. Oh, you had this problem too when you first tried to write a paper. You got this part wrong too. I don't remember exactly how was my first, you know, discussion section, but I do remember, no, he's like, this isn't right. He's like, first of all, you have to remind the readers what you found, and you have to you have to start by saying why it's important. And like, it's funny to me that you had a similar experience. Okay, so you made the same mistake as I did. And in fact, your supervisor had the same supervisor that I had. And so we've probably all been taught basically the same thing from the same people down the road. All right. So why is this so hard? Why do so many students struggle with figuring out what discussion sections are for? It sounds like it should be straightforward. Discuss your results. In your own words, what is it actually supposed to be doing? Here, the authors should first remind the reader why their study was worth doing and what makes their findings noteworthy. Then they should place their results in context. How do they add to or contradict prior knowledge of the topic? So I say this to students all the time. You have to place your results in context. What does that mean? You are supposed to compare what you found with what has been reported previously in the literature on this topic. When I say compare, I I guess I also mean compare and contrast. I think here it's also important for the authors to go over the limitations or shortcomings of the study. It's interesting you say that because I totally agree. And sometimes students say, why are they criticizing themselves? And even reviewers will say this, you know, this isn't the right place to be discussing that. But I think actually it is because what you're doing when you write about things you would change or things that you aren't sure of is setting up what the next logical research step might be. So I think that good discussion sections should have that level of self-criticalness to them where you can comment on those things. Completely. 
So the mistake that I made when I first tried to write a discussion section, and I see a lot of students make the mistake, and maybe it's the same one you made, was thinking that the discussion section was to discuss your results. When in fact, it's actually supposed to be discussing how your results are similar or different from other people's. That's the context part. And I've even argued to students who are struggling with this to think of it like a ratio. Maybe 30 to 40% is interpreting your results, but the sort of 60 to 70% is actually about other people. And that's where you give your work a broader feel to it. So I found this and it's similar or different than other people's work. And so I think students sort of missed that, and I certainly missed that when I was t first trying to write one of these, and certainly students miss it when they try to read one. Yeah, I agree with that. I also think that a great discussion section is one where the authors come up with new ideas about what their results might indicate. They speculate about this finding means this, and this leads to the hypothesis that here's what I think we should do to address that question. For, for me, that is just as important as saying how my results differ from or or match with what was done before. So what did they put in this discussion section? One of the most important they make is how in most plant-animal mutualisms, there's an exchange of food for a service. And it's usually the plant providing the food and the animal rendering the service, like pollination or seed dispersal. But here it's the opposite. So the bat gets a cozy roost where it can rest, safe from the elements and predators, and it pays rent in the form of guano, and that delivers a limiting nutrient, so nitrogen, to the plant. Apparently, the morphology of the pitcher even seems adapted to give the bat a good foothold on what would otherwise be a very slippery surface. So they compare this case with that of another pitcher plant species that lives in an ecosystem where there aren't that many arthropods to catch. And so it hosts uh, tree shrews that also use the pitchers as toilets, but they don't shelter inside them like the bats do in Brunei. And they explain that uh, the plant hasn't totally abandoned insect capture as a feeding strategy, maybe because that would be too risky, since some plants never attract a bat. And in the end, they mentioned that in other parts of Borneo, there are woolly bats that sometimes roost in pitchers of other plant species, but not always like Hardwick's woolly bat does. And they suggest it would be useful to use those systems as ways to study ongoing coevolution. I really like the way you described that because, of course, you gave it to us in context and referred a lot to other systems and other examples, just as we would expect a discussion section to do. I sometimes tell students to think about papers as being hourglass shaped. You start with this very broad, general introduction at the beginning. It narrows down to the end of the introduction where you have a very specific hypothesis or objective of the paper. You then have some narrow, simplified methods results. Then the discussion begins with a narrow restatement of what you found and then begins to broaden out again until you end up with a sort of general conclusion. Now, of course, there is one other major component to these papers. Scattered all through this text has been the references. 
And in the case of this one, they're given as numbers. So open bracket, 15, comma, 16, close bracket. In other places, it might say open bracket, Claire et al, 2018, Coleman et al, 2020, close bracket. And then at the end, you have this section. In this case, it's got about 16 different references by number. In another case, it might be alphabetical by author's last name. What is the point of the reference section? Why is it that we're such sticklers as scientists on students referencing properly? Well, I think it's one of the most important parts because we can only create new knowledge by building on the work of others who have gone before us. So in the text, we use um, to support any and all statements that are neither common knowledge nor our original thoughts, and we should always paraphrase. And then each in-text citation should correspond to a reference that lets the reader follow the trail of knowledge. I totally agree with you, but I also think it has two other components to it. One, sometimes it gives me an idea where to look for more information. So I'll read something and it'll be a really intriguing idea, and I see that the authors have cited two or three other people who presumably had the same idea, and it'll tell me where to go look for more information on a topic. But then I think we also have to remember that as scientists, the citation is pretty much the only credit we ever get. You can spend literally years of your life doing an experiment and analyzing the data and writing it up and getting it published. But that's the end of it if no one uses it. The citation is evidence that somebody else has found it valuable. And as scientists, I think we get a thrill when we see ourselves being cited, especially if it's somebody who you've admired for a long time. And then you think, wow, they read my paper and they thought it was good enough to use in their own work. So I really stress to my students, you've got to give credit to the people who have influenced you. And you do that through citations. I never really thought about it in terms of the benefit to the scientists, but you're right. When I see that someone has cited something I've written, there is that little, oh, yay. Yeah, it's that little, yay, somebody read my work kind of moment that we as scientists take as real sources of flattery, I think. So there you have it. We've made it to the end of this paper. It's a nice little short one. It's a good one for students to try reading if they're not familiar with how scientific literature is written, because it's a nice, concise, small story, and it's relatively short and easy to understand. Special thanks this week to Dr. Joanna Coleman, who was willing to come and do a two-part podcast, How to Read a Scientific Paper, and then Reading One Together. I hope you'll join us next time for another topic. Thank you.